you have your Bibles, go with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be today in verses 10 through 20. Um, so we're going to be here till about 8 o'clock, and uh, we'll finish. Uh, um, really what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give us an overview of 10 through 20. I'm not going to break down verse after verse after verse. I'm going to kind of get an overview, but particularly an overview that connects the rest of Ephesians coming into chapter 6, verse 10 through 20, and help us see kind of where this fits into uh, Paul's overall uh, picture here in the book of Ephesians. So with that said, let's read verse 10 through 20, and then we'll pray. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would wake up to the fact that we are in a battle. That there is a war raging around us and in us. And Father, please continue to prepare us daily, moment by moment, for this battle. Father, may we take up the effort that should be ours in fighting this battle. Father, for your glory and certainly for our good. It's in your Son's name. Amen. I want to, first of all, pull a few kind of strings together for us. Obviously, we've been in Ephesians for uh, a mighty long time now, like 80 weeks or something like that. So what I want to do is kind of set the big picture here of walking into chapter 6. So very briefly, let me pull some strings together. In the first part of Ephesians, we discussed 
kind of just a handful and, and more than this, but certainly at least these few marvelous truths. Let me recap them for you. First of all, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That God's children have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We talked about how God is orchestrating the entire world so that one day Jesus would emerge as the point of it all, right? The consummation, that he is summing up everything and, 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 and the goal, and at the, at the end of all that, that Jesus would kind of emerge, if you will, as the one and only glorious one. Talk about how God is rescuing his people from death unto life. Ephesians 2. And he's rescuing, bringing dead people back to life. Giving them new life in Christ. Talk about how those once far away have been brought near in Christ. And that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed that Gentiles are now fellow heirs with Christ. Right? That, this, that this gospel, this work of God, this good news has happened. And Paul spends the first three chapters kind of rolling this out and explaining this for those in the church in Ephesus and for us today. And then Paul moves on in the chapters 4 and 5 and, and even into the beginning of 6 of discussing that because of this calling, because of this gospel, because of this work, because of these truths, God's people are to live a certain way. For example, unity in the body of Christ where saints are being equipped to do the work of the ministry. This is something that is true of those who believe and live the gospel that Paul just spoke about. Another example, he talks about no longer walking as the world walks. That our very lives look different than, than the world, the unredeemed world around us. For example, we walk in things like humility. We walk in honesty. We walk in kindness. We walk in forgiveness. And so on. He specifically names the idea of walking in wisdom. Making the most of the time. That God's people, because of the gospel, now live this way. Walking in wisdom. And then as the series that we just finished up, that God... That God's people live within His divine relational order. Both in home and beyond. That we're called, we're all called to submit and trust in certain areas of life. And they were all given different areas in which we also exercise some measure of authority. So this is how God, again, this is how God's people are now to live because of this gospel that's happened that Paul has talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But here's the question. The, kind of the, the question I want us to ask as we enter into this, kind of this last section of Ephesians, as we kind of land the Ephesians plane over the next month or so. How do we do this? Like, how, how do we actually take this gospel... And connect it to everyday living. I, we, we talk about this is not a foreign concept for us as a church, but, but I think what's going to happen is Paul, 
is actually going to dive into answering that question. So because of the gospel, now I live a certain way. But yet, if, if my observation is correct, many of us, the gospel has little to nothing to do with the way we live each and every day. Many of us, at best, I think, try to live according to the law with little to any gospel motivation. So we kind of do the religious thing. We kind of do what is the right way to live. Because that's just what the Bible says. But Paul is not presenting that Christians live this certain way because that's just what Christians do. But there's a gospel motivation behind it. I mean, when we think about this, I mean, honestly, answering this question, I think, is really hard. And, and none of us in this room are where we could be or where we should be. And I think this is what Paul's going to do, at least in part, and in the big picture, what he's going to do in this passage. He's going to connect for us this gospel and this everyday living. How do these two things converge? Very briefly, I think there's kind of two views that most of us kind of come to this last passage with. The two broad views here. The first one is this. We come to it with uh, some measure, I think even ladies, with some measure of cultural masculinity. Right? Think about favorite movies. Gladiator, or Saving Private Ryan. Any of those favorite movies for people in here? Yeah. Yeah. Braveheart? Yeah, that's a good example. There you go. <laughs> he said that was almost the music for the background. People who enjoy hunting, ultimate fighting, gun ranges, paintball. I think f- for those kind of people, and I would put myself in that category, uh, this passage is super interesting. Like super... Uh, you know, wow, we've got this armor and this very militaristic picture. This is fantastic. I got, and, and, and if you're a checklist person, right, you're kind of like, I got this to do and this to do and this to do, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm good. The other kind of view, I think, is people approach this. So you got kind of approach it from this kind of this cultural masculinity view. And the second view is we approach it with this kind of this idea of uh, what's the big deal? I think all of us fit into one of these two categories, probably most of us in the latter. But what's the big deal? Like, okay, cool, we get to put on this belt of righteousness, this, uh, these things. We get to do this, and there's this kind of this war, and he tells us to put on this armor, and okay, well, that's great. I'm glad he's done that. These are the kind of people, I think, who tend to approach life and solving problems simply by things like psychology, physiology, they just kind of think about relational skills, try to solve problems financially or politically. Again, my guess is that most of us probably fit into this category, that we, we go at life, go at solving problems and solving brokenness by simply pragmatics. We read this passage and we go, oh yeah, you know, life is tough out there, it's hard you know, to live for Jesus and and then we go about trying to solve issues 
whether in our lives, in the lives of others, in this world, by every means possible other than God's means. But this is not what this passage is teaching us. It's not saying, oh, you know, there's this little issue going on that you Christians should deal with and you need to be prepared for. That we're all supposed to look like Jesus, so go about doing our little religious activities. What Paul is telling us is that there's a war. That there's a war going on. That you're in the middle of a battle. That tomorrow's going to be a battle. The next day's going to be a battle. Next week's going to be a battle. You're going to be in war every day, every moment. There's war happening. There is a war going on for the summing of everything up in Christ. There is a war against making Jesus the point of all creation. There is a war against Jesus' glory being manifested in your life. There's a war. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul is telling us that since there's a war, We need to be fit for battle. You see, being fit for battle is an ageless responsibility. This is not just something to those in Ephesus, those who who faced this kind of walking war where people fought with swords and had to put on army, and and now it's different for us because we don't fight wars that way typically. This is an ageless responsibility. It might seem like old language, but I don't think what Paul's saying could be any more relevant today. Here's why. The passage is ageless because humanity has not changed. The same humanity then is the same humanity today. Ephesians 6.11 says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. A couple observations here. First of all, our spiritual needs have not changed. This is the biblical norm. We still want to be rulers of our own lives. We still want to chase idols to give us satisfaction. We still want to worship other people and the creation. That Our needs have not changed since the garden. Our spiritual needs, rather, have not changed since the garden. Second observation is that the evil one is still active. He was active then. He's active now. That's not changed. He was active in the garden. He's active now. He was active in Ephesus. And he is active now. Our spiritual needs and the spiritual needs of those in Ephesus have not changed. As we think about this being fit for battle... Certainly this is something that Paul was concerned about. It was something that Paul cared about. It was something that Paul saw. And he's saying to the church in Ephesus, you need to prepare. As a good friend told me this past week, we prepare for the things we care about. We prepare for the things we're concerned about. I was thinking about this in the holidays. We prepare for a party we're about to host Are we prepared for things like marriage? Are we make sure our kids are prepared for school or sports? Making sure they don't miss a single practice. 
or a homework assignment. We prepare for work each and every day. You see, we make sure we're fit for the things we care about. We make sure our families are ready for the things we care about. Husbands, you make sure your family is fit for the things that you care about. So being fit for battle, this idea of being ready for a war is is not this old thought that belonged 2,000 years ago. It is something ageless and something that is a responsibility for us even today. The second kind of big thought here is that being fit for battle is rooted in the Old Testament. I don't think Paul is being as influenced by kind of the Roman culture of his day as much as he's being uh, influenced by the majestic imagery, warfare imagery of the Old Testament. Especially the book of Isaiah. You see, the Old Testament often refers to God and His Messiah, thinking Old Testament here, excuse me, as a warrior and His people as troops who are in need of God's strength. Exodus, let me give you some examples. Exodus 15.3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Psalm 18, verse 39, For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Psalm 35, 1-3, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. You know, in Isaiah, I read part of this passage earlier, or or read more than actually this verse earlier. But Isaiah even talks about God and His Messiah wearing certain things. Isaiah 11, verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist, and faithfulness the belt of His loins. And then Isaiah 49, verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in His quiver he hid me away. I think Paul is picking up on these illusions. This passage is rooted, I think, in Old Testament imagery of the King of Kings. The one who would wage war against the serpent. That's what Paul, Paul is, again, pulling these things together for the people in Ephesus to see and certainly for us today. It points These illusions point to the nature of the Messiah and His mighty works. right? Because of the battle, the war that it would take. Think about that as we spent Christmas time talking about how Jesus walked in the Spirit by faith in the Father, utterly dependent on Him, exercising very little of His divinity. 
He was engaging in warfare. He was battling on our behalf the battle that we ultimately cannot win apart from Him. You see, being fit for battle is a necessity for all the themes of Ephesians. For all the things that Ephesians is is encouraging us in. For the life we are to live. The things we are to believe. The faith we are to exercise. That being fit for this battle is a necessity. You know, we need to realize this, what Paul, I think, is uh, this kind of big picture that Paul is painting for us here at the end is that the armor of God is not some random attachment to the end of this letter. Instead, it's a brilliant conclusion. It serves, like this, this last passage serves as a climactic conclusion to these amazing truths and how God's people are to live. Kind of, if, if you will, putting a, an exclamation point on the importance and the difficulty even of the truth that he's just proclaimed. So here's the gospel. Now live this way in light of the gospel. And by the way, that's really hard. It's going to be warfare. It's going to be a battle. It's going to take a lot of effort. You're going to have to fight for it every day. Honestly, I, I think when <clears throat> preachers preach this passage kind of in a vacuum, disconnected from the rest of Ephesians, I think they really kind of gut this passage. That there's rich meaning and impact that the rest of Ephesians leads into this passage. Again, Paul is telling us that in order for us to live out all these wonderful themes in Ephesians, we're going to have to be fit. Like These are things that will not just simply happen. The connecting of the gospel to everyday life is not something that just kind of happens. It's not something that's just going to take place by us doing our religious activity. We must remember that these things will not even necessarily happen if we go to church every chance we have, if we read our Bibles every day, and have a prayer routine like that of George Mueller. By the grace of God, we do our part in readying ourselves for battle, but God is still the one who is in control of it all, and it's by His grace that we live. So Paul is telling us that in order for us to live out these wonderful themes in Ephesians, we're going to have to be fit for battle. Let me kind of give you a few of these themes that are kind of being pulled from the rest of Ephesians into this last passage. First one was this, the idea of divine power. We spent a lot of time over this past few weeks talking about divine power outside of Ephesians, but certainly here in Ephesians, the call to be strengthened, the call to be to be empowered by His vast strength. It draws our minds back to passages like Ephesians 3, verse 16. He says that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So you have this idea of divine power that's being pulled all the way through Ephesians into chapter 6. 
We have the idea of the, the already not yet, that the, this passage here reminds us that Christ has already triumphed over the power of darkness and given us new life, right? We've seen that. However, we haven't experienced the fullness of Christ's victory yet. It's not finished. Like His work, in a sense, is finished, but we haven't experienced it all yet. Ephesians 6 and this passage remind us that the battle still rages. That the war is still going. Another theme. Christ-like virtues. Christ-like virtues. So here's the gospel. Here's how you live. Here's the virtues. So for example, truth, righteousness, peace, the word of God, the gospel, salvation, faith. Right? These are virtues that Paul has talked about. That we are to walk in these now. We are to live like this. And he draws these into Ephesians chapter 6. Another major theme is the idea of prayer. The exhortation to pray. If you look at the end of 18... I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. He goes on. So this exhortation to pray reflects previous language. Like in chapter 3, verse 18. It won't be up on the screen, but I'll read it for you real quick. He says, uh, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This idea of praise, he's praying for this for those in Ephesus. Praying for boldness, like chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And Paul's praying these things for those in Ephesus. It's the idea of prayer, and Paul picks back up on this prayer. Here in chapter 6, the last example I'll give you is this idea of putting on. Right? He's, already, he's, already, he's already brought in this theme of putting on. Earlier, Paul said we should put on the new self, created according to God's likeness. In chapter 4, verse 24. And then in chapter 5, he tells us to be imitators of God. So there's this putting on, there's this imitation. Now he says we should put on the full armor of God. So again, see all of these themes that Paul is dragging from the Old Testament, or from uh, certainly the Old Testament, but from the beginning of Ephesians and chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and on to chapter 5, bringing them right into chapter 6 saying now that we should put on the full armor of God. Paul puts together a conclusion. A conclusion. Like he kind of summarizes all of this, recaps it all, and motivates, by God's grace, his readers and us today. Listen, he's telling us this. If we're going to connect the gospel to everyday life, it's going to be Certainly two things at least. It's going to be warfare. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a battle. Consciously, you're going to have to do it. It's not going to happen by chance. And you do it by putting on this armor. You do it by putting on these things that we'll spend the next weeks 
talking about. You see, I think what Paul is saying, first step back and take big picture here. Paul's saying this. We desperately need a cosmic vision of everyday life. We desperately need, we must have. You in Ephesus, here's the gospel, here's how you live. Now understand, you need to view life this way. What do I mean by cosmic? Like something distinct from this earth. Something distinct from just what our eyes can see and our hands can touch. There's, 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 a, there's a bigger reality than what our eyes and ears and hands and mouth can taste, feel, touch, and see. Ephesians 6.12, he says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Right? What's he saying there? Like that's what you can see, that's what you can touch, that's what you can sense. But instead against rulers, against the authorities, against the what? The cosmic powers over the present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can you and I see those things? We can see the effects of those things. We can see them controlling certain things. But this is beyond what just our eyes and ears and faces can see and touch and feel. This is why I think we fail so often. We make stupid decisions so often. Why we have conversations we shouldn't have or have priorities in the wrong order or we chase idols. It's because we don't realize that there's a war. We don't realize that there's something going on beyond what we can see. Like when you're talking to that unredeemed person, the person who is not loving and following Jesus, that, that there's more than just that person sitting in front of you. There's a war going on. There's an active war battling for that person's soul right in front of your eyes, whether that's a relative or a friend or someone you just met. And at the same time, at the same time, there's a war going on for you and your heart. I think we play with fire thinking we're not going to get burnt. But we don't realize what the, what's raging around us. You see, since the beginning of chapter 4, when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, Paul has been talking about the challenges we face. About what we are to do and the brokenness of this world and, and how things should change. And Paul's been talking about these things, but now what Paul's doing, he's putting an emphasis on the challenge, but instead moving our eyes from the practical day-to-day things that our eyes can see to the reality that there is a cosmic and a spiritual battle raging beyond our human vision, beyond what we would just regularly see or perceive. He is saying there's more to the battle than what you can see with your eyes or more than what you can feel with your emotions. One commentator said this, he said, We cannot simply say that our relational challenges in the church, our behavioral challenges in the home, or our ethical challenges in society are the results of everything except spiritual problems. They may surely involve physical and psychological challenge, but we are complex beings. And many of our problems are spiritual warfare issues. 
You see, herein lies, I think, some of the problems that many of us want to talk about problems, even in the church. Like, not, like people in the church wanting to talk about problems, people outside of the church wanting to talk about problems. But everyone wants to talk about problems without talking about evil, faith, trust, or the Spirit. Like some of us, some in the culture may give a sentimental value to these things, but largely nothing more. When we hear of struggles in our own lives and in the lives of others, we don't think oftentimes, maybe even most oftentimes, with a biblical mindset, the way Paul's telling us to think here. We think about things at such a shallow level. But Paul is telling us that there's a war going on beyond what your eyes can see. There's a battle taking place beyond what your eyes can see. Our assumption, our operational, like, Mode should always be that there's a war going on. Let me ask you this. Do the people around you know or sense that you're fighting a war for them, for their soul, on their behalf? Or do the people around you just simply enjoy shallow spiritualism at best? Or fluffy socialism at worst. Like what? What's what? What are they? What are you known for? Like, is it just fluffy community, or some shallow spiritualism, or 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 are you that friend that wars for the good, for the soul? of your brother or sister. I'm not saying you don't have fun times and get to hang out and just talk about nothing but stupid things. I mean, that's fine too. I did a little bit of that last night. Watching that stupid football game. But like, here's the question. Would you be considered a friend who wounds? You know, to, to take it from Proverbs. Would you be considered a friend who is, who is willing to engage in warfare? Because you see it. And because you love them. You see, many of us want to talk about problems, but, but we don't want to talk about problems the way Paul's talking about problems. Concerning things of evil and faith and trust in the Spirit. I think many of us think, and certainly those unredeemed, think that this warfare talk that Paul's got going on is just crazy. I was talking to a person around Christmas time who's studying psychology at a Catholic university, uh, particularly dealing with kind of school counseling and stuff. And when, when I discussed, we kind of started engaging about what's this look like and, and uh, started talking, obviously I started talking a little bit about the biblical understanding of problems in life and and I tried to do it in a, in, in a non-offensive way as much as possible. and <laughs> um, Just encouraged this person to check out a few resources and, and such. And it was a really good, good conversation. But the, the response I got was, well, that's a really neat perspective. So, and what, I was, what this person was referring to is I was talking about how 
how our struggles are inward, even though they have, have outward thorns and outward pressure and maybe things that spur us on, the way we respond to things and the way our hearts re- inter- interact and, and react with life and, and, and how, the, how the Bible has a lot to say about how that works, the response I got was, oh, that's a neat perspective. Like it's, it's, it's one of the options in the cupboard or the refrigerator that you might choose from. And, and honestly, I really felt like I was getting a little bit of, uh, uh, I don't know what the word is, but the idea of, uh, oh, that's cute, you know? Uh, that's a neat perspective. Um, like it was crazy. Like you're nuts. No, that person acts that way because of all these things, and then they just need to have happy thoughts like Peter Pan. Like, I mean, that was essentially the other perspective. Anyways. But you know, people in the church, listen, people in the church think about spiritual warfare and think it is crazy, I think, as well. Why else do we always deal with life, often deal with life, at such shallow and superficial levels? Why else do we always look inward to fix our problems instead of looking upward to the gospel? Why else do we fail to prepare for battle? The only thing that explains that is we just don't realize the, the, the spiritual warfare aspect of our lives. Why else would we just go about life as if it's not there? We press in a little bit further. I think we oftentimes deal with our problems and life out of, out of arrogance. We think we have it figured out. We think we, we got it. And this part of it, at least an implication of what Paul's saying here is that, listen, you don't got it. There's more than what you even see. We think we're so advanced, I think, as people, particularly in Western civilization. Yet look around our world. Streets are filled with violence. Humans are oppressed as though they're animals. Families breaking down everywhere. We don't have it figured out. Our world doesn't have it figured out. Look at the church. Not just ours, but broadly, and certainly ours. Men failing to prepare their families for battle. Why would they do it? Because they think they got it figured out. People in the church chasing preferences like it's doctrine. Why? Because we think we have it figured out. We have our hopes crushed all the time walking around as joyless and dissatisfied people. Why? Because we think we have it figured out. And Paul is saying, listen, guys, you don't have it figured out. Why? Because there's a battle that I don't even know how to explain all of it. There's a war that I don't even understand all of it, but I know who does. I know who does. You see, we're in a broken world that is influenced by the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4. You see, the Bible doesn't allow for a simplistic answer to the problems of this world. And our lives, certainly. Clearly, clearly, there's some pragmatic answers to issues that we face. 
Sociology can be helpful. Psychology can be helpful. I, I get it. I'm not denying the helpfulness of those things. But they cannot and will not provide all the answers. They can't. We have to take into account sin and Satan. And that's what Paul's saying. Sin and Satan are issues. And we must be informed about the true nature of our problems if we're going to actually get at the right eternal solution. You see, there is a real unseen battle beneath these visible problems. The ones you see in your own life, the ones you see in your own heart, the ones you see in your spouse, your kids, your church. Paul's saying we must have a cosmic vision for everyday life. What do you mean by that? Every day, every moment, we're realizing, we're believing, we're seeing that there is more to this than what's going on that my eyes can see. There is a battle taking place. And if there's a battle taking place, Paul says, be fit for battle. Be fit. Be ready. Be prepared. There's even a sense in this passage where it's like preparing. Actively preparing. So, with all that said, let me remind you of a couple things. The first one is this. The war has already been won. The war has already been won. You say, but Matt, you just told me that we're in a war, we're in a battle. Yes, the war, though, has already been won. As one commentator said, we're just in cleanup operation right now. We're in cleanup mode. But there's just, the war has already been won. Jesus is already won. Jesus is Lord, and we are in Him. So you say, so what's the point of this armor stuff? What's the point of this battle stuff? You see, the emphasis is not on us memorizing each piece of armor or us pulling out a flannel board and, you know, and describing this armor. Here's the point. If the war has already been won and Jesus has already won, here's Paul's point. We're putting on Christ. We're putting on Jesus. That's the point of this passage. If, if, you, if you hear teaching on this whole armor of God and you don't hear the resounding thought of you're putting on Jesus, then you're missing the point of this passage. Paul is saying, here's the gospel, here's Jesus. Here's how you live in light of Jesus. Now put Jesus on that you will live, and the fruit of that will be this way, this way of living. We're to put on Christ. We're to recognize who we are in Christ and to live consistently with that identity with the spiritual resources that are ours. You see, because of this emphasis, because of the emphasis that we're putting on Jesus, we can have true hope and confidence. So This is not a war that we walk into as though we should fear the outcome. 
we walk in knowing what the outcome will be. And we don't have to live in bondage and fear. You say, so here's the question, how do I, so how, how do I put on Jesus? How do I put on Jesus? How do I do this? Listen, John 1 tells us that Jesus is the Word. That Jesus is the Word. He is the Word. How do we put on Jesus? By faith, we put on the Word. We become so immersed in what God has said about Himself and believe it by faith that we know more clearly what it is that we have been clothed in. So, what are the garments that I'm wearing? What, what do these mean? I have righteousness. I have truth. What does that mean? These are on me because of Christ, but what, what do they mean? What do I... You see, we, we put on Christ. and I'm, I'm, Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk more specifically about what does each of those little pieces look like. But what I want to point you to now is that Paul's kind of big overarching thought here is we put on Jesus. You see, in Ephesians, again, there was two parts, the gospel and the living out the gospel. Why does Jesus and putting on Jesus, what does that have to do with anything here? You see, Jesus did this perfectly. Jesus lived and connected the truth of His Father, the good news of His Father, the rescue plan of His Father with His everyday life. Jesus connected the two perfectly. He trusted the Father's good news about redemption. And He lived perfectly in light of this good news. And He is our only hope of salvation. Trusting in His work in paying the price for our sins. That is where we rest. Jesus did this perfectly. You see, not only does our righteousness as a standing before God come from Jesus, but our ability to live righteously for Him comes from knowing our being in the being of Jesus. Who we are in Christ. We've talked about how understanding our identity impacts everything we do. It's like my, my boys, you know, they love wild crats, right? I'm all the time, dude, stop acting like a lion. You're driving me and your family crazy, okay? Why? In that moment, he thinks he's a lion. Like, he thinks he's roaring and scaring people. And, and half the time, between lions and monkeys, of course, the monkey thing might, they might still think they're humans or something, but they just act that way anyways. Confusing identity, I get it, it's a, it's a kid. But you see, we confuse our identity all the time. Multiple times a day. Maybe even going days and weeks thinking we are something else. But you see, as we know our identity more clearly in Jesus and rest therein, the more consistently we will live like Him. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, gospel, live this way, Put Jesus on. That's what's going to happen. You will live this way. 
See, putting on the armor, putting on Jesus is not some mystical or elusive idea for us to kind of chase and hope for, but putting on Jesus means putting on the Word because Jesus is the Word. It's how we connect the gospel to everyday life. I'm looking forward to to fleshing all this out over the next few weeks. But what I want you to see here today is that there's a war, and this needs to be an ever-increasing realization. When you're engaging your kids, there's a war. There's a battle for their heart right now. When you're talking to your spouse, there's a war going on. And we can either get sucked into playing games the way Satan plays games, the way Satan battles, or we can battle the way our Savior battle and go rest inside Him. But there's a battle. See it. Realize it. Ask God to give you cosmic eyes, if you will, to see that there's a war going on beyond what our human eyes can see. And that if we're going to be fit for this war, we're going to put on Jesus. There's no other way. Ephesians 6, 18 through 20. Let me end with Paul's prayer here. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I want to pray for us similarly. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that there is something beyond. There is something beyond our eyes. Something beyond our senses. There's a war raging. We don't, we're not raging war with someone that we can ignore. We're not raging war with someone that we can throw human darts back at. We're raging war with someone and something that is beyond our ability. But Father, we don't wage war as those who are unsure of the outcome because the outcome was sealed 2,000 years ago. The outcome of this war was sealed cross and the resurrection of your son Jesus the outcome of this war was taken care of back then but we know father that the effects of this win of Jesus' triumph over this war that the full effects have not been experienced by us that we await the day when He emerges as the sum of all things. And so in between here and there, we wage this war. But we don't do it on our own. And we don't do it, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, as, as wimps. Father, for we stand strong in Your armor, the armor of Your Son's blood covering our hearts, and our minds. May we rest therein.
Uh, for we love you. I pray more today than we did yesterday. Father, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.